This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Sang. Today we're going to talk about Vietnam and the CIA. Um, we'll be focusing on some recently released uh, declassified documents, uh, declassified historical studies of uh, the war in Vietnam, and also talking to an author who has analyzed those documents as well as has written his own book on the Vietnam um, War Uh, uh, one volume, huge uh, thousand pages volume, I think. Um, huge, huge book on um, the history of the war. Uh, this is Dan Zhang with Subversity. Coming up, the opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Hi, with us on the phone is uh, John Prados. Prados who is the author of a new book on Vietnam and also uh, compiled this uh, National Security Archive analysis a briefing book on the CIA uh, in uh, Vietnam. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, actually, John, it's your second time here, actually, on this show. I just realized <laughs> uh, I talked to you when uh, Gates, uh, Robert Gates, was being considered to be the new defense Secretary from the C, uh, moving from the CIA. That's back true. In 2006. Uh huh. Yeah, and I actually had you on. Uh, I'm glad to be back. Yeah. <laughs> um, why? Uh, what? What was the extent of the CIA involvement in uh, in in Vietnam? Uh, it it predates the actual uh, U.S. involvement in the war. Uh, the CIA involvement goes back to the early 1950s when the French were fighting their war in Vietnam and uh, the agency moved in first to support the French and also to develop its own contacts among Vietnamese and uh, from there it built a wide portfolio of activities uh, relating to all aspects really of what was going on in Vietnam. The thing that we posted on the National Security Archive website, by the way, wasn't a, is not a briefing book, but it's actually a series of five specific individual histories of different aspects of CIA activity in Vietnam and in Laos and Cambodia by the CIA itself. A uh, former CIA operations officer, now retired, uh, compiled these histories based on agency materials as well as US, other U.S. government documents and uh, illuminates all these various aspects of CIA activity. It's really quite an interesting selection of material, and uh, I would uh, recommend to your listeners to uh, go to our National Security Archive website and take a look. Yeah, and those are linked on the Subversity homepage at KUCI.org slash Subversity. Uh, and that was Thomas Ahern, and I was imp impressed that he actually reviewed names of station chiefs. Uh, in uh, you, I've never really seen that in other CIA documents. Well, it's interesting, actually, the treatment of names in those CIA documents, because in particular, one of the volumes in that collection, the one on pacification, on the CIA's role in uh, pacification of Vietnam, had been previously released by the CIA back in 2006, I believe it was. And you can see, if you look at the version that they put out in 2006 and the version that came out this year, the differences between those two documents are primarily that in 2006 the CIA was deleting a whole lot of names which they permitted to be in the document when they released it this time around. Why, why is that? Why are they more liberal this time? <laughs> I don't think that it is that they're more liberal. I think what it was was that between 2006 and after 2006, after that release in 2006, I believe that a number of the people who were named in the document complained to the CIA that their names had been deleted. And other people, <laughs> uh, other people from the CIA who had been involved in these activities and had been named in the manuscript passed away. Yeah. The CIA often uses the Privacy Act yes. as a shield to prevent disclosure of information of this sort. And I think that's probably the basis of their action uh, when they released that document in 2006. There's a sidebar uh, in which you complain about 
the long process for getting uh, documents under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, have, have, have things actually gotten worse, or have it gotten has it gotten better for historians? Uh, I I would definitely have to say things have gotten worse. I will tell you that uh, I filed a, a Freedom of Information Act back request for a CIA document back in 1978, I think. <laughs> and uh, wow. I got that document. I got the completed document with virtually no material taken out of it in less than three months. But this set of documents that we're talking about today, the CIA Vietnam histories, it took 17 years to bring that material to the public. Is the gist of it is they are treating uh, these historical accounts even as operational uh, files. That's correct. The CIA got some uh, amendments to the Freedom of Information Act for itself from Congress in 1985 on the basis of an argument that, well, they needed to protect their real uh, intelligence interests in intelligence operations, and if this, if they were given an exemption for operational files by the Congress, they would expedite the release of histories and historical material. And in fact, once they got that exemption, they are now uh, regarding the histories as operational files. So they just applied that uh, restriction to historical accounts. Basically, what they're doing is taking taking a provision uh, that exempts one category of materials and then expanding the category to include other kinds of material. For example, uh, if the CIA puts together a plan for something, that's not an operational file, that's a plan. Those plans, however, under the CIA definition of what is an operational document, uh, are also... Uh, regarded by the agency as operational files. Uh, Similarly, administrative material, um, which has nothing really to do with operations, is being regarded by the agency as operational files. It's similar in California to the Public Records Act. uh, There's an exemption for police uh, operational files, I guess. And so you can't get anything now (laughs) about police abuse uh, because, uh, or even, you know, whatever the field reports or whatever they're doing because that's uh, considered operations. I do not know why government agencies uh, choose to operate in this way uh, in a country that's dedicated to openness. It's uh, perplexing to me. And uh, how would people, uh, in the end, be able to get these files with the, just going by going to court, I suppose, huh? Well, yeah, my position right now with respect to those files is that I could go to court to demand, or not files, I should say, those CIA histories, which continue to contain many deletions, my position right now is that I could go to court to sue for the release of the additional material, um, or I could just let it go. That's exactly the the situation. Yeah, they figure that they're not going to release anything until you file a lawsuit. And then, even if you file a lawsuit, it's kind of iffy. Well, they would release the material if I won a lawsuit. The question is, can I win a lawsuit and can I pay for it? That's true. And this is, I'm sure, what the agency depends on in making these denials, is that people can't afford to pursue uh, uh, their requests. Now, it's also true, by the way, that under the 1985 exemption that the agency was given, they're supposed to review these so-called operational files every 10 years. Right, you mentioned, yeah, in your side, yeah. And uh, if you look at agencies the agency's performance, there's actually no indication that any of these 10-year reviews, which should have occurred in 1995 and in 2005, resulted in the opening of any particular material at all. And sometimes they release files without telling you, right? I mean, they've released stuff that you requested, but they gave it to somebody else. Yes, that's correct. I remember some of these files were mentioned at a conference at U of Texas, I remember. Um... Uh, I think some of the people involved may have been at a conference, and they had a few months earlier had um, actually um, quoted from these uh, and said that they were available.
Well, I think you probably referred to conferences that occurred at Texas Tech University. Texas Tech, yeah. Sorry. And that was actually exactly the place where the agency first released that pacification volume right, that I right. referred to that had the yeah. names deleted. Um, and yes, in the context of releasing that to the general public, they never supplied it to the Freedom of Information Act request for <laughs> and uh, they again released the full set of these CIA histories at a different conference at Texas Tech University this year. Right, right. Uh, but this year, this time around, they at least uh, provided the documents to the FOIA requester a few weeks, actually, in advance of releasing them to the general public. Oh, they did. Yeah. Huh. Do, uh, back on the to the substance of the documents. Uh, it's quite shocking to see that the U.S. was paying up to, uh, was authorizing up to $3,000 per candidate in the National Assembly elections in Vietnam before the fall of Saigon. Um, is that, uh, I guess that's common practice of CIA covert operas, operations. Well, I would not exactly say that that was common practice. You know, the agency has to adopt a program to do some specific thing, and if they were to adopt such a program, then they would do that kind of thing. I don't think they routinely do that in every election. But in the Chilean elections in 1970, for example, right. the ones that uh, uh, elected Salvador Allende, in these Vietnam elections, uh, yes, the CIA did do this kind of political intervention. They also even supplied experts to help uh, their favorite candidates put together their campaigns and uh, uh, reach, out, reach out to the public in the best fashion that they could. I might add, by the way, that all through this period, that is, during the historical period, the elections in 1966 and 67 and 71, uh, the CIA constantly denied that it was doing anything like this. But we read here in the CIA histories details of what they were actually doing. Wow. And uh, do you, you know, with the... Um with this, uh, without hindsight, in in hindsight, do you think that it's possible that uh, it's also happening in Afghanistan these these days? Um, I would I would have doubts about the about U.S. participation in the recent Afghan election, if only because the United States was so much at odds with the sitting Afghan government and so leery of being uh, singled out as having contributed to the competition in a situation where I think it was pretty clear, really, that Karzai was going to make sure the election went his way no matter what, that uh, they would be leery of getting caught on the wrong side no matter what they did about that election. So I bet you they kept their heads off. In, in the Vietnam election, um, the subsidies, did that have any effect? Yes, I think it had certain effects on the the, comp on the complexion of the Vietnamese national legislature that was elected in 1967, on the constituent assembly that was elected in 1966. It's harder to say about uh, CIA contributions in other South Vietnamese elections. Did they also influence uh, polling there? Uh, I know the USAID or USIA. I sorry, U.S. Information Agency had lots of polls in uh, in Asia in that period. Um, do you know if CIA tried to influence the way people voted or how they gathered data? I don't think that the CIA attempted to influence AID polling, but I do think that the CIA probably did some uh, public opinion polling of its own if only to serve as guidance for its experts who were working on that political action campaign. Uh, you also mentioned, uh, uh, you also referenced uh, in the study, there was this, uh, in Ahern's study, there was this uh, reference to uh, contacts with the National Liberation Front uh, uh, yeah. during the war. And I, discuss, I discuss that also in a certain amount of detail in my book, Vietnam, The History of an Unwinnable War. Uh, the the fact of these contacts under uh, uh, Johnson era peace fielder that was codenamed Buttercup uh, have been known for some time, but without any real knowledge of detail. And what's extraordinary in the CIA histories that were recently declassified is that there is a, a good amount of detail about these C 
secret contacts between uh, South Vietnamese acting on behalf of the United States and uh, the North Vietnamese and the National Liberation Front. And the uh, the Ahun study also reveals that that it was the police chief, national police chief, uh, General Luan, who uh, had a prisoner who they turned over to the CIA station that uh, was the link uh, in this kind of, uh, the intermediary in this kind of uh, contact. Well, that's sort of correct. It's a little bit more complex. The uh, person that the national, the South Vietnamese National Police Chief Luan had in custody was a relative of the contact. And uh, the contact made it clear that he wanted this person released. Oh, the wife. The Americans, yeah. yes, that's right. The Americans then went to the South Vietnamese and begged them to release this person. Uh, at that point, by the way, it became... Uh, impossible for the CIA to conceal from the South Vietnamese that it was having these contacts with the enemies of Saigon going on at the same time. Uh, so the uh, South Vietnamese actually signed off on these contacts in the course of this back-and-forth operation. Uh, but then a few months later, the South Vietnamese changed their attitude and began to uh, uh, arrest people that were involved in this contact. And later on, some of the people that were involved in this contact were sort of persecuted by the Saigon government. And uh, eventually they stopped all this because the Paris peace talks were, were about to begin anyway. Is that right? Well... They stopped uh, not too long after Tet. Tet but there was yeah, a right. there was a second wave, sort of, of these contacts that occurred in late 1968. And you're right, that second wave stopped uh, at the point where the Paris peace talks began. Yeah, we had uh, on this program a few weeks ago uh, Susan Morgan Cooper, who did this film about Eddie Adams, uh -huh. uh, which of course was about uh, General Luan uh, shooting a prisoner. Right uh, in the head, and uh, did you? The, what I was impressed with in your book, uh, getting to your book, Vietnam: The History of an Unwinnable War, nineteen forty-five to nineteen seventy-five, was you combined uh, different perspectives from uh, different states involved, but also you looked, uh, you included uh, anti-war activity uh, in the U.S. Yes, I think it's. I think one problem with our understanding of the Vietnam War as a piece of history is that so much of the work that's been done on it has been done in a kind of an atomized way. People just look at the contents of the combat in the war or else they just look at uh, what American presidents decided at various times or else they just look at the anti-war movement for that matter. Um, without actually looking at all of the things in the context of each in the context of the other. Uh, and I should include, by the way, South Vietnamese politics, because that's a, a key uh, factor in all of this situation. So what I tried to do in that book was to reframe the history and use the lens of all those different kinds and sides of the situation to uh, march through the chronology of the war and show how the different things impacted each other in a way that progressively reduced uh, the possibilities for the United States to come out with any kind of outcome other than the one we finally achieved. It's a massive book. I, I thought it was a thousand pages. It seems like a thousand pages, but it's uh, technically a uh, six hundred sixty-five pages with like oh, thirty. Actually, it's only five hundred sixty-five pages. There's a hundred pages of notes and bibliography and all and, of that. And kind the of index, stuff. yeah, and the index is about thirty some pages. Yes, that's right. So there's a lot of that kind of apparatus, but the contents of the book really is no more challenging than 550 pages. <laughs> but it How includes, do you keep, yeah. but it includes within that amount of space uh, all these different things that we've been talking about. So uh, it really covers an enormous amount of ground uh, in that space. Yeah, I'm impressed that the University of Kansas, uh, uh, University Press of Kansas has uh, published this. Um, would it have been hard to go to a commercial uh, publisher with this huge book? Um, a few years ago, I don't think it would have. Uh, it's getting harder. I've written 18 books. It's getting yeah. harder to write a long book. Uh, in fact, in the course of this book, 
uh, actually I decided that the next book and the ones after that have to be shorter, if only because it is, as you say, uh, getting more difficult to, to publish the long-form long uh, works. It's like the U.S. Census. Uh, you don't want to fill out the long form. <laughs> 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 but I really am impressed as a librarian. I really like the, the fact you had this annotated uh, bibliography. Uh, oh, thank you, know, you very much. Criticizing and critiquing, actually, and also uh, talking about the best books in this field and what the, the scholars lack in other books. Um, uh, I noticed, actually, that you do include a section on UC Irvine. Uh, about surveillance of by yes, Navy, that's right. by you the see, naval intelligence. Here. Yeah, and that was an article actually I wrote for OC Weekly uh, that you cited uh, Patty Palmerly, who was. Yes, a, that's right. Yeah, that <laughs> you didn't know that, huh? All right. <laughs> and that was uh, I had gotten some naval intelligence files um, when El Toro uh, 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 when El Toro was closing. Uh, the El Toro was known. Uh, was uh, was a naval base in Orange County, and um, I had requested files on UCI, actually, materials from uh, FBI, I think, and w- some of the files actually were kept, uh, were referenced in the FBI files, so they said, or the FBI response said, you have to contact the naval intelligence for it. And so one day, uh, <laughs> right before El Toro closed, uh, I got this, you know, huge packet in the mail, and they were actually... Z- uh, photocopies of uh, reports uh, about UCI students that had been uh, parked at the base and protesting. And leading the campaign was uh, SDS, uh, uh, Students for Democratic Society, leader on campus. This was in the early days when Irvine had just opened. That's uh, right. Paddy Pomley. And uh, also uh, Greg Hoffman, who was uh, at that time working for a computer company. By the, by the time I interviewed him, I tracked him down. And we we talked and uh, found out what uh, what he was a uh, actually a first year uh, undergrad, and I believe and he and Palmerly were very involved in this SDS chapter locally. So, so I'm it's glad you put that in. Fascinating story, it really is. And there's so many fascinating stories involved in the war, in the Vietnamese politics, and in the anti-war movement. Not to mention the ones about U.S. government officials trying to figure out what to do about Vietnam. Uh, and I tried to select among all those different kinds of material in writing uh, the book, Vietnam, History of an Unwinnable War. Right. And I'm glad yeah. that I got the right one for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I, I... I might have sent it to Kate Martin at the archive and maybe it circulated. Or maybe you, your researcher, or you found it on the Internet. Um, I did. I found it on the Internet. Oh, you did. Good. Yeah, so that was fun writing uh, that piece for the OC Weekly. Uh, the uh, I think people do need to do more. Um, I know you also, in the same page, you were citing uh, Seth, uh, what's his name, from the San Francisco Examiner, who had done uh, requests for surveillance on campus yes, in the right. UC. And, uh, Berkeley. Rosenfeld, Rosenfeld Seth. Uh, and anyway, uh, it takes a dogged determination. Do you... Do you get, ever get tired of writing away for these files? Well, I've been working with the Freedom of Information Act since the middle 1970s, and uh, I'm really one of those people who is committed to openness in government. And yes, I get tired of waiting for the files uh, for requests that I make, but on the other hand, opening up this material is an important thing to do. So uh, I keep at it. And I worry that it's harder to get it because now the tentacles of uh, surveillance have gone down to the local police, obviously, uh, because of these uh, terrorism task forces that are, you know, that are being uh, set up all over the country to try to keep tabs on potential terrorists. And uh, so that everybody basically seems to be uh, an informant, it seems, or the, the police try to make you an informant. And they also are connected into this myriad uh kind of uh, spider web of uh, connections all the way up to the national government. Well, that's a good illustration of why freedom of information is important. In fact, we had a case exactly like that here in the state of Maryland where uh, uh, requests for Maryland government documents revealed that Maryland police, state police and county police, were 
infiltrating and surveilling uh, local protest movements that were against the death penalty, mm-hmm. uh, in favor of women's rights, uh, against the Iraq war, uh, simply on the excuse that somehow these people could be terrorists. And when uh, requests were first made for this material, they were rejected. Wow. And I, I remember being on a, a airport bus uh, riding back from the airport one day from LAX, I believe, and there was a local cop there from maybe Anaheim, and he was saying he was actually taking pictures of uh, all the Muslim or Arabic storefronts and then going to their funerals and taking pictures of people in attendance, just in case. (laughs) Well, it is a strange time in which we live. There's no question about it. But the, the closest comparison to the strange time in which we live today is the time of the Vietnam War. And that's why it's so important for a book like Vietnam to reach in and put the anti-war movement, the government surveillance, the war decisions, all in the context that shows how uh, government felt that it had to surveil the people in order to move ahead with what it wanted to do. In the time of Vietnam, that actually evolved to the point where the United States government was virtually conducting a war against the American people. And that's one of the very significant lessons of the book, Vietnam, History of an Unwinnable War. During the time of the uh, George W. Bush administration, it looked like we were headed very far in that direction. And I'm glad that the last election has changed the party in power because hopefully that will stop this evolution. I would not like to see the United States again in the kind of situation that it was in in the middle of the Vietnam War. Definitely not. Uh, We're talking with John Prados, who's uh, author of a new book on Vietnam called Vietnam, the History of an Unwinnable War, 1945 to 1975, and author of uh, a dossier on the on the National Security Archive website uh, on the Vietnam histories. Uh, this is Dan Sang with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And uh, the opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. In the book, you uh, suggest that um, the South Vietnamese argument that, or the, or the U.S. military argument, I guess, uh, retrospectively, that they could have won if they were given more support is bogus. Yes, that's correct. Uh, most of the, there are various forms of this argument, but uh, the most uh, recent ones uh, are that the United States won the war late during the war because of successes that we had in the pacification of South Vietnam. And another one that, in fact, the United States had won the war very early on and we had thrown away the victory. In Vietnam, the History of an Unwinnable War, my new book, I show that uh, the character of the war changed late during the war. And not only did the North Vietnamese transform their military from a guerrilla army into a much more conventional force, thus rendering our progress with pacification uh, less meaningful, but also that South Vietnamese peasants left the land and migrated to the cities as a consequence of economic changes that occurred in South Vietnam, which meant that the pacification war was uh, almost irrelevant to the development of South Vietnamese society by that point in time. And with respect to the first argument, the one that the United States won the war early on, the evidence that uh, is used to buttress that argument is flawed because all of our materials that we were collecting, all of our analysis of Vietnam was not understanding the real problems in Vietnam. We had an information problem, and a Vietnam information problem that impacted on every decision that we made with respect to the Vietnam War. 
Thus, using that data today to claim that, in fact, we were victorious during this early period is a fundamentally flawed argument because we're depending on the same misconceptions that were built into our understanding at the time in order to claim retrospectively that we were really successful. You called that the data problem in the yes, book. Yes, the Vietnam data problem. That's right. So is that does that relate... Uh, in in part to the numbers kind of game that you know body counts was was that uh, body counts was one part of the Vietnam data problem but it was only one part it had uh, innumerable parts for example uh, we I just referred to these pacification figures uh, or the pacification success I should say the uh, claim of success at pacification was based on a set of data that we developed that was supposed to show how many villages the government controlled and how many villages the National Liberation Front controlled and so on. And um, you could then analyze these trend lines and whatnot. Uh, I show in the book that, in fact, a significant proportion of the villages were included in the government control category even though they had never collected data from those places. So that to even include them in the village count was a mistaken thing to do, but they did it anyway because they needed to show progress in the war. How about the issue of um, the plan to, have, uh, to create these strategic hamlets? Was that a success or a failure? The strategic hamlet program is is uh, a claim uh, success. Let me put it this way: success with the strategic hamlet program is a claim that's made by some of these people who argue now that we won the war early on. But you go back to the strategic hamlet program and look at what actually happened, and in particular, you look at its treatment by the South Vietnamese government. This, by the way, being an example of how looking at it from different points of view shows different things. If you look at it from the South Vietnamese perspective, you see that the people that the South Vietnamese were putting in charge of the strategic Hamlet program were the ones that they wanted to get rid of from the <laughs> military hierarchy. And you see that uh, the officials that were uh, in charge of implementing the strategic Hamlet program were using it as a, a source of corruption. They were stealing the money that the United States was devoting to the strategic Hamlet program and diverting it into their own bank accounts. So you then have a situation where uh, uh, the South Vietnamese uh, made a show of uh, working on strategic hamlets by putting up ramparts around villages and whatnot, but they did not actually do the things that the strategic hamlet was supposed to do in terms of integrating peasants into South Vietnamese society and modernizing uh, the economy and the country. The net result being that uh, all of this activity on the strategic hamlet program was uh, a visible thing. It was like a Potemkin village. It was a visible thing that was not generating real results. Also at night, I assumed that I, I read that the villagers would uh, go out and welcome the Viet Cong into the villages and support them. That was true in a lot of cases, absolutely. Uh, the time of the strategic Hamlet program uh, is actually the same time as when the National Liberation Front village committees and its so-called parallel hierarchy were becoming quite heavily entrenched in the villages and hamlets of South Vietnam. Did the, uh, did the CIA actually pre uh, predict the fall of Saigon? No, it did not. Uh, the CIA was looking ahead in the period of 1974-1975 to predict Hanoi's strategy and Hanoi's activities in the war, and they predicted that the North Vietnamese would try uh, uh, experimental type operations. They would try to uh, knock on, so to speak, South Saigon's door and see how rickety the South Vietnamese structure was. Uh, they 
expected, however, that North Vietnam would not make a major offensive like the one that they had run in 1972 or the one that they had run at the time of Tet in 1968. They did not anticipate a major offensive like that before 1976. So when the North Vietnamese began to make those attacks uh, at the end of 74 and beginning of 75, and the South Vietnamese forces began to uh, collapse, as they did. Uh, the CIA was taken by surprise, much as the rest of the U.S. government. And the ambassador at the time in uh, Saigon, uh, Martin, was criticized for not planning for evacuation, right? It was a very interesting situation with Ambassador Martin because he was so committed to the uh, program of supporting South Vietnam that he resisted making any conclusion that the country was collapsing because he felt that would uh, uh, reduce America's willingness to support South Vietnam. So as a result of refusing to make a determination like that, he refused to permit preparations for an evacuation. And when an evacuation became clearly necessary, that meant that all those advanced preparations had not been made. Wow. Uh, I have to ask you about this, uh, the murder of, uh, uh, of the President uh, Ziem. Um, did the CIA actually get involved in that? Uh, they knew about it, but did they actually cause his death? That is an argument, uh, or I should say an event, that uh, Vietnamese and Americans, I'm sure, will debate forever. Uh, we go over the evidence for this in some detail in uh, the book Vietnam, the History of the Unwinnable War. But I go over this same evidence in much greater detail in another one of my books, the book uh, uh, William Colby, right. uh, History of the CIA Spy Chief, which actually is just about to come out. Uh, and uh, the evidence very clearly shows, I think, that the United States was aware of the coup plans. They were in touch with the coup plotters uh, that some senior American official, officials had doubts about supporting the coup, that uh, there were discussions at the highest levels of the United States government about supporting the coup, and that uh, those discussions were indeterminate. We uh, blundered along, but by not uh, informing our Vietnamese contacts that we opposed a coup, we erred in the sense of not sort of calling them off, and by not uh, uh, participating in the coup per se, because I don't think we did that, we also erred in thinking that that would mean that there was no American connection to it. I think it was clear from the standpoint of everybody looking at the events that there was an American connection to this coup, and you couldn't just pretend that it wasn't there by saying that you didn't pull the trigger or you weren't holding the gun. In fact, the morning of the coup, a CIA officer was running around Saigon with $40,000 in the briefcase to support the coup plotters. Mm -hmm. Wow. And uh, also on the Tet Offensive, uh, you know, people say the military actually won, the U.S. military won in that case, or the Vietnam, um, you know, U.S. and South Vietnam won, um, but it was a political uh, defeat. Well, there's no question that Tet was a political defeat for the United States, but there is a question about the military, the so-called United States military victory. And I understand why people want to make the argument that there was a military victory at Tet, but it's not as simple as that. And this goes back to the Vietnam data problem that we were talking about. One, yet another aspect of the Vietnam data problem was our understanding of how big the enemy's army was. And we were constantly and consistently under-reporting the size of the North Vietnamese army. Now, no North Vietnamese uh, were killed more than the ones that we counted 
that were killed. But the question is, how large a percentage of the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces did that represent, did that number of casualties represent? And if the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces were twice as large as uh, what we were saying in our order of battle estimates, then the impact of those losses on the enemy side was much less than we anticipated. In terms of the actual military uh, events of Tet, the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese demonstrated a series of things. Number one, they could attack anywhere in the country on a pretty sustained basis. This coming at a time when we were saying they were defeated. Number two, they could conduct an extended battle and campaign, which they did by capturing the imperial capital of Wei and holding it for almost a month, and conducting a siege of Quezon, which went on for 77 days. And number three, that uh, they could uh, conduct these operations, pull their forces back with impunity, not uh, interfered with by our military forces. Thus, uh, we thus showing that we did not, in fact, have the military initiative as a result of Tet. All those things speak to the issue of whether Tet was an actual military victory for the United States. And I really think that the best you can say is that uh, Tet was a, a stalemate. We prevented them from winning, yes, but we did not, in fact, defeat them. They suffered heavy losses. They suffered heavy losses, and even in the question of the of the heavy losses on the National Liberation Front and North Vietnamese side, there are aspects to that as well. One of those is that uh, the North Vietnamese conducted a second and a third wave of Tet, and the losses that they took in those uh, events in the late spring and in the summer of 1968 were more damaging to them, I would argue, than the ones that they suffered in what we commonly refer to as Tet, which all happened at the beginning of 1968. Uh, and the other one is the question of uh, the internal politics on the other side. The fact of the matter is that most of the forces that the adversary committed at Tet were forces of the National Liberation Front. With the exception of the fighting at Quezon and in the city of Wei, uh, where there was a much larger participation by the North Vietnamese Army, the uh, forces that were attrited and that suffered so many losses were forces of the National Liberation Front. Now, that had a political effect on the enemy side in the sense that those great losses suffered at Tet were going to affect the strength of the National Liberation Front in post-war politics in Vietnam. But they did not have such a great military impact on the North Vietnamese Army because a great deal of it was never committed to the operations in the first place. Psychologically, of course, uh, it, because they reached the streets of Saigon, um, that Tet Offensive uh, gave a boost to the anti-war uh, critics in the U.S. Well, that goes back to where we started this uh, uh, conversation, which was that, yes, Tet was definitely and undisputably a psychological victory for the Liberation Front and North Vietnam. So, uh, yes, no question about that. Uh, you, did you look at sources, uh, I know you looked at sources in English uh, uh, from the South Vietnamese and the North Vietnamese side. Uh, do you read Vietnamese? I do not read Vietnamese, but I had uh, access to translations of Vietnamese material, and yes, I did use Vietnamese sources. I used uh, 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 unit histories of uh, North Vietnamese units, uh, North Vietnamese material on the Battle of Quezon, for example, mm. uh, Communist Party secret documents that uh, appeared in uh, annual series, very much like uh, the series in the United States we published called Foreign Relations of the United States, which mm -hmm. declassifies secret material uh, from different 
uh, government agencies about specific subjects. The North Vietnamese have a similar set which declassifies party documents. So, for example, actually, uh, since we're talking about Tet, uh, I go into a, a discussion in the book, uh, Vietnam History of Unwinnable War, about the last conversations in Hanoi prior to Tet and what the high party officials were saying to each other about their plans for the operation. And that material came from uh, the Vietnamese party documents. You know, uh, I, I'm in Orange County, so the South Vietnamese, uh, former ex- the exiled South Vietnamese uh, community here is always strong in arguing that their voices were ignored in all these accounts of the war. Uh, that you know that they were not just pawns of the U.S. And uh, uh, what do you think of that argument? Oh, I very much agree that the South Vietnamese were not just pawns of the U.S. And I make a sustained effort in the book to cover the South Vietnamese political uh, evolution, the different things that happened in South Vietnamese government, how those things affected U.S. calculations in the war, as well as the development of the South Vietnamese army. Well, Nguyen Cao Ki has written a memoir, and which you cite. And what do you think of his book? I like his second book, Buddha's Child, much better than the first one. <laughs> he <laughs> actually has written two. Yeah. Uh, I believe the first one was called Twenty Years and Twenty Days. And um, uh, in the second book, he's more reflective. Uh, he actually uses some uh, uh, materials that from U.S. government documents, in fact, to, to reestablish his thinking at certain points where he was in contact with Lyndon Johnson, for example. Uh, and uh, he's more reflective. And uh, he covers, I think, the Vietnamese side with uh, a good deal of sensitivity. Now, I understand that... Uh, uh, Mr. Key is not all that popular among the Viet Q, uh for various reasons. Because he went back. and uh, Yeah. And but he, uh, I do think that he's made some attempt to grapple with uh, how he was thinking then and uh, sort of explain why he thought the way he did. And uh, that I felt useful, and I used it uh, in this book. Some people argue that the book is very self-serving. Uh, trying to present himself as this, you know, kind of Buddhist, uh, you know, believer and uh, whatever. It's certainly true that the book is self-serving. That's no no question about that. However, uh, I think that autobiographical material in general is self-serving. <laughs> For sure. And uh, uh, that's not inherently an, an objection, I think. Uh, more uh, would be if this self-serving material was uh, of no consequence from a historical point of view. And I think that his book is historically important because he was, after all, the Prime Minister of South Vietnam during a key period of the war, and his political struggle with Nguyen Van Thu dominated Saigon politics for uh, almost half of the key period of the U.S. war in Vietnam. Therefore, uh, I think that you cannot deal with the history of the Vietnam War without taking Nguyen Van Key into account. Now, obviously, the same thing is true of two, and I made a, a sustained effort to take two into account. I studied his biography, and I studied his activities. Uh, and I wish that there had been a two memoir to uh, compare and, and line up against the Key book. Unfortunately, that material doesn't exist. I did the best that I could using uh, materials from other two associates. Did the uh, did you feel that the South Vietnamese now uh, are getting uh, finally their point of view across in the U.S., or do you see that they are still uh, uh, ignored, basically? I have great sympathy for the South Vietnamese in the U.S., uh, I think they have had, I agree that they have had trouble getting their point of view across. Uh, I think that there are, that that situation is changing. There, there's more South Vietnamese material becoming available. I think that scholars in the United States will increasingly have to take it into account. I also think that there are more scholars 
scholars in the U.S. who are uh, attentive to the issue and are looking for South Vietnamese material. Uh, so I'm hopeful that the combination of those things will result in a, a better presentation of the South Vietnamese side of the Vietnam War. Uh, you mentioned your new book uh, on Kobe and the CIA station chief. And uh, did, uh, did I would have a question about the way things work in the, in a station, does or in an embassy? Uh, is everybody in an embassy actually working for the CIA, or is it just the people in the station? Well, it, within the U.S. embassy, everybody in the station is working for the CIA. Uh, the CIA is able to call on the uh, efforts of other people uh, working at the embassy, but that is at the pleasure of the American ambassador involved. So if they had an office next to each other, if Kobe's next-door neighbor was uh, somebody, would that person be also in the station, or would that person be in the embassy rather than the station? Well, don't forget now, the station is part of the embassy. And oh, yeah. Physically, the U.S. station in Saigon, the CIA station in Saigon, was located at the U.S. embassy, and that was true right through 1975. Uh, in fact, at that uh, a horrible tragedy in early 1964 where the U.S. embassy was struck by a car bomb, uh, much of the damage was inflicted on the CIA station, which was in the direct the path of the bomb's explosion, but mm. most of the casualties were actually suffered by uh, uh, employees of the U.S. Embassy who were not of the CIA. So there's not necessarily, uh, just because you're right next door, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're in, this, in the station. That's true. And we don't know enough about uh, the internal organization of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon uh, to know uh, what the location of an office means. For example, if the CIA station occupied the entire, let's say, seventh floor of the embassy, there would be a fair supposition right. that... Uh, your question would apply, that one person would be related to the CIA station. But uh, if the CIA station was split on different floors of the embassy, and in particular if uh, State Department or AID or other officials also had offices on a CIA floor, then you could no longer say that. Uh, how does this Intelligence Identities Protection Act uh, affect this uh CIA history. I mean, I thought they're not supposed to reveal uh, secret identities. Well, the purpose of the... That's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked it. The purpose of the Intelligence Identities Protection Act was to protect the identities of uh, CIA officers who were actively serving undercover in operational assignments. It was not to protect names of CIA personnel in general. It was not to protect names just by themselves. Uh, this is another, yet another example of uh, something that we talked about early in this interview, um, which was the tendency of the CIA to expand its uh, definitions of things to encompass more than, in fact, they mean. So in the case of the Intelligence Identities Protection Act, the CIA gradually increased uh, the things that it sought to protect through that exemption by claiming even right like even up to things like uh, the identities of high CIA officials who were uh, approved by Congress, who were confirmed by Congress. Richard <laughs> Helms's name, public, yeah. Richard Helms's name has been deleted from CIA documents under the authority of the Intelligence Identities Protection Act, even though everyone knew who Richard Helms was, and Richard Helms was making public appearances in speeches and on TV. <laughs> uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's another example of how this is a very deleterious practice. Now, because the, uh, uh, the Act covered active uh, employees in covert assignments, 
something like the CIA history of Vietnam could use the names of CIA officers without any violation of the Intelligence Identities Protection Act. And in this case, it's to the credit of the CIA, actually, that they have uh, permitted that information to go out in their declassification of the documents. Yeah, in my own case, uh, as you know, uh, I may have told you, I had a Privacy Act request for CIA files, and one of the arguments in the court case was that um, the um, the fact of a CIA station existence was also secret, that they couldn't even admit there was a CIA station somewhere. Yes, the CIA has sought to protect the uh, fact of the existence of CIA stations. However... Uh, and I'm sorry, perhaps, that you did not know this at the time of your court case. Um, since the uh, the Kennedy Records Commission that uh, investigated activities of the CIA related to the assassination of John F. Kennedy, that is no longer the case. That is to say, in the course of the declassification effort that was made by the, the Kennedy Records Commission, the CIA was obliged to admit the existence of stations as well as to identify specific stations, including uh, Mexico City, Paris, and I <laughs> believe Saigon. What year was that uh, declassification? Uh... That went on from about 1997 to about 2002, perhaps. Oh, I think my case you was can... before that, yeah. So oh, okay. That's why. Yeah, <laughs> that's why they were still uh, towing that line. I yeah. see. Um, you were a student at Columbia, right? Yes, were that's you, correct. And were you involved in anti-war activity then? Yes, I was. And so th- what, that was why you, it sparked interest in Vietnam? Your, no, actually, no? my interest in Vietnam predated my uh, work at Columbia or even my involvement with the anti-war movement. In fact, I wanted to... Uh, Go to West Point, become an Army officer, (laughs) and go fight the Vietnam War. Wow. And when I was still in high school, that's when I decided I would go out and find out everything I could about Vietnam because I figured I would soon be fighting there. High school? Wow. So uh, I started reading about Vietnam uh, in the middle 1960s, and uh, I've never stopped. Wow. That's amazing. But in between... I turned from wanting to fight the war as an army officer to ending up as uh, an anti-war activist because of the things that were going on, the things that my country was doing in Vietnam, uh, and the things that my country was doing in the United States against Americans. For sure. And the Privacy Act actually was enacted as a result of the provision on not collecting materials relating to First Amendment activities of U.S. citizens and permanent residents was enacted uh, enacted as a result of the Vietnam War. However, That's correct. However, given 9-11, is, don't you think all bets are off now? Well, this case that I referred to with the Maryland activists against the death penalty and, and, other, and other activists is a case in point of how, in fact, that prohibition seems to be honored in the breach. For sure. And in my own case, the CIA wouldn't agree. The Kate Martin tried to get the CIA counsel to agree uh, not to spy on uh, Americans and permanent residents uh, on their First Amendment protected activities. But they said they they had the because they were pursuing, you know, um, whatever um, pursuing the charter. Uh, they didn't want to say that, but they agreed in my case not to spy on me. But <laughs> but how do you know that? That's nice, but isn't it Ill- illegal for them to spy against anyone inside the United States? Well, they're saying that because they had, uh, yeah, they kind of uh, admitted that, that they shouldn't have done that here. And a lot of my documents actually had to do with my travel also. So there were times when I was traveling around and they sent cables to CIA stations uh, to try to find out who I was. That's interesting. Yeah, so well, I'm sorry that you were subjected to that, and that's exactly what uh, the danger is, you know, of all of this stuff, and why the example of what happened in the Vietnam War is still relevant and important to Americans today. And I think that 
Vietnam history of an unwinnable war does a good job of illustrating how governments get into situations in which they think that spying on their own people is important to do. For sure. Thank you very much, John Prados. Uh, It's a pleasure. Of uh, Vietnam, the history of an unwinnable war, 1945 to 1975, from University Press of Kansas. Thank you. We'll keep Very in touch. Good. Thank、Bye-bye. you. Okay. Bye bye. So that was、uh, author of many many books on Vietnam and on intelligence and on、um, strategic uh, studies,、um, calling us、uh, on the phone from the East Coast,、um, and links to his biography and his uh, material uh, on our website. Um, KUCI dot org slash subversity. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity.